As we start Daniel chapter 5, one of the main characters in the first four chapters of Daniel is no longer alive. The last words of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 are words of praise to God. In verse 37 of chapter 4, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the King of heaven, for all his acts are just and true. But the king doesn't stop there. This mighty king's final thought focuses on a lesson that he learned the hard way. He says it in the last half of verse 37, And God is able to humble the proud. When we turn the page to Daniel chapter 5, we meet a new king, Belshazzar, who is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Unfortunately, Belshazzar hasn't inherited any of Nebuchadnezzar's hard-learned spiritual lessons. About the only trait that Belshazzar has picked up is his grandfather's discarded pride without a trace of the heart that was finally responsive to God at the end of that king's life. From Daniel chapter 4 to Daniel chapter 5, we move from a generation of revival to rebellion. We move from a generation of humility back to pride. After Nebuchadnezzar dies in 562 BC, his son and then two of his son-in-laws all become king in the span of just six years. After three years as king, son-in-law Nabonidus appoints his son, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, as a co-king of Babylon in 553 BC. Now Nabonidus spends most of his time of his reign away from Babylon. He's securing the borders and strengthening the empire. So he appoints his son, Belshazzar, to be the stay-at-home ruler over Babylon. Babylon is a heavily fortified city. With Nabonidus out securing the borders of the empire, fighting off any adv advancing threats, Belshazzar was quite comfortable lounging on his throne in the city of Babylon. No invader had been able to storm that city for over a thousand years. Belshazzar had every reason to believe that his city was impenetrable. But friends, that's all about to change. Like Jeremiah and Daniel had forewarned, Cyrus, King Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king and his army were coming southward toward Babylon. Now Demodotus sees and is alerted to the threat, and so he and his troops head off Cyrus at the Tigris River. And a battle takes place, but Nabonidus is forced to retreat, giving Cyrus an open road to Babylon. Back safe within the city, Belshazzar brushes away the news. What harm could Cyrus possibly bring against Babylon's massive stone, wall and its stone walls and its impassable moat? Even when Cyrus begins his attack, he's there at the city, starting to attack it. Belshazzar pays no attention to the threat. You see, Babylon has 20 years of food supplies stored up in its granaries. Cyrus and his troops would run out of provisions long before Belshazzar would. So the arrogant king scoffed at the attack and decided that the perfect way to show his superiority wasn't to fight back, but to throw a party. So let's pick up the arrogant festivities in progress in Daniel chapter 5. We read in verse 1. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. So you have King Belshazzar throwing this great feast, and his head is spinning from the alcohol. He's feeling the sense of invincibility. It doesn't matter that Cyrus is out there attacking the walls of Babylon, even while they're drinking their wine. 
And he starts to believe in himself. He starts to think that he's the king of the world, the greatest king, greater than, than Cyrus, greater than his dad, Nabonidus, greater than his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. And in his drunken bravado, he performs an act of blasphemy that none of the preceding kings of Babylon dared do. Reading in verse 2. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, concubines drank from them. And while they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar, when he took Israel into captivity, had stored Israel's temple vessels, showing a respect for their value as sacred treasures. By using them to toast his own gods, Belshazzar shows his contempt for both his grandfather and the god that King Nebuchadnezzar eventually came to worship. Unlike inanimate idols that can't respond to praise or desecration, friends, the true god can respond. The true God does not tolerate arrogance and mockery. The true God, as we read in verse 5, has this response. Suddenly they saw fingers of a human handwriting on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw this hand as it wrote, and the king's face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. Belshazzar had to realize in that moment, deep down, that this message was not good, that this message spelt judgment. And it sobered him up. In verse 7, the king calls in the experts, the enchanters, the astrologers, the fortune tellers, the wise men of his kingdom, and promises that if any one of them can interpret the inscription, that person will become the third ruler after King Nabonidus and himself of Babylon. If you remember back to the days of Nebuchadnezzar in the earlier chapters of Daniel, God's message confounded the Babylonian wise men then, and it does again. Seeing their helplessness, Belshazzar becomes even more alarmed, and the scripture tells us that he becomes even more pale with fear. Now the queen, probably Nebuchadnezzar's surviving wife, the grandmother of Belshazzar, is the only one in the king's court who remembers that Daniel has done this kind of thing before. And so in verse 10, the queen mother calmly calls for the prophet Daniel. Reading verse 10, but when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, long live the king. Don't be so pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magici magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve difficult problems. So call for Daniel and he'll tell you what the writing means. Now, it's been a number of years since Daniel was last called by a king. Daniel's now in his 80s, and yet he still carries himself with this steadiness born out of a lifetime of faith in God. 
And before the young and inexperienced king, Daniel stands wise and firmly rooted. His character, his integrity are unchanged. He's unshakable. But the disdainful Belshazzar in verse 13 just sees Daniel as a, as a mere exile from Judah, a captive. He looks down his royal nose at Daniel and offers him the same deal, the same riches and power, and power for an interpretation. But Daniel can't be bought. We read in verse 17, Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts or give them to someone else, but I'll still tell you what the writing means. Now, before he reveals the meaning, Daniel gives the king a history lesson. He confronts Belshazzar. He reminds him that all the power his grandfather, the great Nebuchadnezzar ever had came from, from God. He reminds him of how hard that lesson was for a king like Nebuchadnezzar to learn. But eventually, even the great King Nebuchadnezzar believed that all crowns of authority belong to God, who gives, takes away for his purposes. So not even the kings have a right to boast before God, according to Daniel. And with that historical rebuke, Daniel confronts Belshazzar with God's charges against him. Reading in verse 22, Belshazzar, you are his successor, and you knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself. You didn't learn from your grandfather's mistakes. For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven, and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them, while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all but you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent this hand to write this message on the wall. You see, Belshazzar knew his grandfather's legacy, and yet he didn't apply it in any way to his life or his rule as a king. Instead of worshiping the living God, Belshazzar chose to worship lifeless objects. And now the living God is about to take everything that Belshazzar boasted about away from him, his throne, his kingdom, even his life. Daniel reads the inscription like a head juror reading a verdict. This is the message that was written, Mina, Mina, Tekel, Parson. Literally, the translation is Amina, Amina, a shekel, and half shekels. And to interpret it, Daniel uses the root meanings of the word. Mina comes from the verb to number or to reckon. And he uses it twice to signify that this reckoning is going to happen very quickly. Tekel comes from the verb to weigh. In other words, worth or worthiness. And parson comes from the verb to divide. We read in verse 26. This is what the words mean. This is Daniel speaking. Mina means numbered. Belshazzar, God has numbered the days of your reign and he's brought it to an end. Notice the past tense there. He's already done it. Tekel means weighed. You've been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar listens, but amazingly seems unchanged by the devastating prediction. Verse 29, he simply follows through with what he had promised. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes. He was given a gold chain uh, to be hung around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel's made the third highest ruler in the Babylonian empire. 
And Belshazzar appoints him to that high calling as if the empire is just going to keep on going as is. Belshazzar truly doesn't believe that God has spoken and that the party's over. But unknown to the king, Cyrus has managed to lower the level of the water running through the moat around Babylon by diverting the river, which now allows access to the city under the river gates. The Medes take the city by surprise, and we read in verse 30, that very night Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed, and Darius the Mede, Cyrus being the Persian, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. And with that, friends, one of the most powerful empires in the history of humanity begins to fade away. So friends, what lessons can we take from that ancient world, from this ancient scene in the king's court, and apply within our current world? Let me share with you two truths that are timeless. First, God's judgment may seem slow, but it's thorough. Think back, starting in 1859 BC, the Babylonian Empire reigned supreme until 539 BC. That's over 1,300 years of governance. In less than half the time, this great world power became completely obsolete. Not a citizen left. For over 1,300 years, it ruled the known world. And during that time, it took God's nation, Israel, into captivity. But the truth is, just as it always is, even today, God was in control all along. And God was, and He is today, still accomplishing His purposes. As powerful and as endless as its own rulers in Babylon believed they were, the records say otherwise. Today, Babylon's mere history, because it refused to turn to God, and so the living God declared His judgment on it. Today, Babylon is no more, and our God continues to rule over all kings, over all nations, all super superpowers, all of His creation. Friends, we don't need to wonder if God will do something about the evil that goes on in our world, no matter how rampant or how powerful it may seem to be. The prophet Habakkuk questioned the same thing during the beginning of the Babylonian rule when he wrote in his book, just before Daniel wrote his book. He, Habakkuk says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you don't listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry out to you, but you don't come to save. Must I see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed, and there's no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. But listen to the answer that Habakkuk received in the face of that injustice. The Lord replied to him, verse 5, Look around at the nations. Look and be amazed, for I am doing something in your own day, something that you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. I am actually going to raise up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. And he does. He does that for over the next 1,300 years. Again, Habakkuk questions, what's going on? Verse 12, O Lord, a rock, you've sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins, but you're pure and you can't stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they are? Chapter 2, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Habakkuk, write my answer plainly. It will be fulfilled. 
If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently for it, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. And then throughout the rest of Habakkuk chapter 2, we read how the eventual fall and destruction of the Babylonians at the hand of God. In other words, friends, God sees what's going on in our world, both the holy and the evil. God has always seen evil's beginning, and he has determined its end. It may seem like nothing's happening today, or it may seem like it's happening way too slowly for our, from our perspectives, but we can rest assured that God's judgment on everything that is against him is happening, and it will be complete. Let me repeat that. We can rest assured that God's judgment on everything that is against him is happening, and it will be complete. History has proven this. History proved it in Daniel chapter 5. And it's true still for our time today, and it will be true for all future generations as well. So whatever injustice you're seeing, whatever power may seem to be outside of God's control, for anyone abusing power or scoffing at God, God sees it all. And God is at work accomplishing His purposes. His judgment over all that is holy, over all that is evil, is transpiring this very moment. And friends, it will be completed. The second truth that we can take from Daniel 5 into our world is one that we've seen repeated throughout the book of Daniel. And that's simply this, never underestimate the power of one godly life. Against that bleak backdrop of judgment stood an available, reassuring, steady voice, Daniel. Daniel understood the writing on the wall because he intimately knew the author of that writing. Daniel endured in a hostile environment because he courageously spoke God's truth and refused to compromise his character. God used him. God honored him for that. Friends, are we following Daniel's example today? Our lives, my life, may be the only witness some people hear or see. Belshazzar was given that ray of redemptive hope by Daniel, but he quickly disregarded it. Daniel comes in, he takes the hard truth of God seriously, and he speaks into Belshazzar's life. But Belshazzar decides to throw a party instead to escape reality. Sounds so familiar to how people react today. And he, he ignores the warning signs of God. Had he listened to that one godly voice, Belshazzar could have lived and prospered under God's hand. Daniel was that godly voice offering redemption before judgment. He had done the same for King Nebuchadnezzar, who eventually did receive eternal life. Belshazzar, on the other hand, chose to reject God, and he received God's judgment. In both cases, though, Daniel was the servant of God, ready to communicate between God and the world. Friends, we're called to do the same today. God is at work today. And our role is to speak this truth into our world. In just a minute, we're going to do some worship singing. And if you're finding that you're in a space uh, where God is calling you to speak into something, or perhaps you're in a scenario where you are facing injustice, we want to walk with you in that and we want to pray with you. And so if you're watching live with us this morning, just click that prayer button and one of our pastoral staff will be there to pray with you. 